a general trigger warning throughout this episode is that we're going to talk very frankly about sexual assault, rape, incest, and grooming. If those kinds of topics aren't things that you're able to handle right now, that's okay. Skip this episode and meet back up with us in Genesis 20. Blessed are you who are content with just who you are, no more, no less. For that is when you will find yourselves the proud owners of everything that cannot be bought. This is the word in black and red. And welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I am your host, Michael Belong, the wise old llama envy, joined today by the wonderful L and Spencer. Now, we have a script that has about a thousand notes on this nine-verse story, so I'm going to jump right into the text so we can get into the meat of what we're discussing today. When God destroyed the cities in the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot away from the disaster that overtook the cities in which Lot had lived. Since Lot had become fearful of living in Zoar, he and his two daughters headed up from Zoar and settled in the mountains where he and his two daughters lived in a cave. The older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old, and there are no men in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom everywhere. Come on, let's give our father wine to drink, lie down with him, and we'll have children from our own father." That night they served their father wine, and the older daughter went in and lay down with her father, without him noticing when she lay down or got up. The next day the older daughter said to her younger, Since I lay down with our father last night, let's serve him wine tonight too, and you go in and lie down with him, so that we will both have children from our father. They served their father wine that night also, and the younger daughter lay down with him, without him knowing when she lay down or got up. Both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father, The older daughter gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the ancestor of today's Moabites. The younger daughter also gave birth to a son and named him Ben-Ami. He is the ancestor of today's Ammonites. This is a strange story, uh, as I feel like I say almost every time (laughs) that we have one of these podcasts. Um, But I want to emphasize the fact that this is a story that doesn't happen in isolation, right? Where this story is the culmination of a path that has been head down since the time of Noah, right? Where we have the story of children who go in and violate their father and then come away with that with children who end up being cursed. The Moabites and the Ammonites are set up as eternal enemies of Israel. And they uh, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Throughout the rest of the story, you'll see that the Moabites and the Ammonites are just constant thorns in the back of the people of Israel who come in and, and do awful things. But this story is supposed to be that level of violation, that they get cursed in this terrible way. Um, now, there isn't a cursing here happening, right? It's as if the the incest itself is its own level of curse. And I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts on that. I have a lot of thoughts on, on this one, um, but they're all kind of predicated on my perspective that Lot's daughters were groomed, if not by Lot himself, then just being in the society of Sodom and Gomorrah and the expectations that per- 
like living and participating in that society meant for them. This story contrasts sort of with the the previous story of Watt's daughters. Now they only they only show up in these two stories. And um, the first story uh, just before this lot offers them up to be sexually assaulted. Lot offers his daughters up and then kind of as a, a mirror image in this story, they could say they return the favor to him. Not to belabor the point on the connection between Noah, but it is almost exactly the same sort of pattern that goes on with the story of Noah, right? With possibly the exception that Noah gets himself drunk and then becomes sexually assaulted in that story, or at least sexually observed in that story, a a form of humiliation from his son Ham. But here in this story, the daughters deliberately get him drunk. And I do think that it's worth talking about the fact that Lot had set up his daughters to be raped by the people of Sodom, right? Where he seemed to throw them out to the wolves. And here, because he thought that that was the only means of survival for his guests, and here the daughters say, Well, our only means of survival with this old man who isn't able to provide for us anymore, our only means of survival is going to be taking sexual advantage of him just in the same way that he was going to take sexual advantage of us or allow others to take sexual advantage of us. And their thought process is a direct result of the way that they've been treated in their lives. Their value is directly connected to the children that they can have. Mm -hmm and their property otherwise, as they were so easily offered up. I'm also really suspect of just the whole patriarchal view of this entire passage, because if we connect it back to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot says his daughters are virgins, but yet also tells his sons-in-laws to come with him. But these are his only daughters. Mm-hmm. It's suspicious to me, so I have to lean on the... Are are these his only daughters? I mean, I I tried to Google it. Let me know if the Google was wrong. (laughs) So so it it depends on whether or not we're just reading the text or if we're taking the tradition into account, right? So from the text itself, it seems as though uh, these are his only two daughters. But it's possible the text is sort of leaving out the daughters that didn't live at home with him. So it's possible that the tradition says uh, that Lot had four daughters, uh, two daughters who were married to his sons-in-law, and then two daughters who were betrothed, but didn't quite count, right? And so something that's important there, if that is true, that he had four daughters and two sons-in-law and two potential sons-in-law, then presumably that's eight people just too shy of the 10 people needed for Sodom and Gomorrah to be spared. And so the idea that there are just too few people to spare the entire city is something that gets worked up a lot. Um, But I don't think in the text that it's actually there. I think in the text that we can't presume that any of the people here were righteous, right? We see Lot offering up his daughters in this way that you know, we can say he was trying to be hospitable to his guests, and so he offered up his daughters, but that doesn't seem to me to be a good decision, right? It doesn't strike me as a morally upright position to be willing to offer people who are so disempowered in exchange for other people. If he wanted to offer himself up, that's one thing, right? But to offer up his daughters does not strike me as the position of a morally upright man. It strikes me as someone who sees his family as his own property with which he can dismiss, um, that he can dismiss people with. 
reading this passage and then just like scrolling memes on Reddit, I saw that like that meme of the billboard from it was a town called Inverness, Florida. It, it was a billboard that said being drunk isn't an excuse. She's your daughter, not your date. That that makes me take another look mm. at this passage, too, because, you know, Lot's just escaped Sodom. He's just with his two daughters. Who did he think he was with when he got drunk? Can you get so drunk that you're blind to that? And, yeah. you know, I, I don't really think you can. Mm-hmm. One of the rabbinical commentaries that I found on that, apparently in the, in the Hebrew text, there is a dot over one of the words in, in verse 33. And for some reason, uh, there's a lot of lot of ado made about this one dot in this verse 33. And they say that the dot means that Lot knew what he had done after it happened, after he'd slept with his oldest daughter. And then the rabbis, they, they place more blame on Lot after that point. Well, absolutely. Like, I think it's so important to note here that, like, from the text, it seems as though this word here, in the land, there are no men in the land to sleep with us. Uh, the daughters think, they're not just saying the land, they're thinking the entire world, right? And so it's really important to note that the daughters think that the entire world has been destroyed. They think that they're in a Noah-like scenario, and only they and their father have survived. Lot seems to know that that's not the case, but the daughters don't know that, right? Lot was able to talk with the angels and the messengers and escaped, but the daughters seem to have this deficit of information. Lot seems to be aware of things that the daughters are not. And so the daughters do this thing. They take their life into their own hands and Lot does nothing to stop them in this scenario. Now they just come up from this town, Zoar. Were there no men in Zoar? <laughs> or or has, has Lot convinced them that Zoar is going to be destroyed as well? Now I think Lot may have believed something along these lines. There is a promise made in the verses 19 to 22. So I think that sort of leads into this weird book that I found, these two French philosophers, but they wrote something called Anti-Oedipus, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, which is about schizoanalysis and like that's a response to psychoanalysis. But in their book, they say something, they they kind of explore desire. And something that they said is, in the subject who desires, desire can be made to desire its own repression. Whence the role of death, instinct, and the circuit connecting desire to the social sphere, desire produces even the most repressive and the most deadly forms of social reproduction. Desire to survive has introduced the most deadly form of social reproduction, which is incest. Yeah, I I mean, the daughters here are doing something that they think is necessary to the survival of humanity, right? Like, they don't seem to undertake this lightly, but Lot does nothing to stop it. Yeah, uh, to, to go back to your point, Spencer, that, that of her rising up, there is a dot of a second vav that is to denote that when she rose, he did know, that Lot actually did know that his first daughter knew that she, she rose up. 
means that he didn't stop himself from getting drunk the second night when he knew what was going to happen, right? Where there was some part of him that wanted this to happen. And so it's disgusting, but <laughs> but that is a that is a reading of the text, right? That Lot did nothing to stop this, despite actually knowing that she did rise up. And here Remember, in context of the story, Lot was accepted in Sodom and Gomorrah because he was such an incredibly wealthy man that he was able to then go to Sodom. And even though Sodom and Gomorrah hated people who were from the outside, he was rich enough, he was basically able to buy himself in. Presumably, when he's escaping, he is running for his life. He only takes his wife and his two daughters. He isn't gathering up all of his servants. He isn't gathering up all of his cattle. He's not gathering up all of these riches. So he goes to Zoar, and he is no longer a wealthy man. He is just a refugee from Sodom and Gomorrah, and he becomes afraid because he knows that the way that outsiders and immigrants and refugees are treated in this place, but also maybe he wants something like this. Maybe he wants something to happen like this. And so um, so runs off to this cave where he can be alone with daughters who he has convinced we are the last living human beings. Now, it looks like Lot was not trusting God here. So God had, he'd explicitly said, like, you can get to Zoar, you'll be fine there. In verse 20, Lot says, yonder city is near enough to flee to. Let me escape there. My life will be saved. And then God says, behold, I'll grant you this favor also. He says, you can go to Zoar, you'll be fine. I also find it interesting that just before that, Lot had said, I cannot flee to the hills. I can't go to the mountains. And then he gets to Zoar and he's like, yeah, I don't like it here. Let's go up to the mountains. Kind of turned around on what God had told him and disrespected that and did did exactly what he, he said he wouldn't do what he said he couldn't do. All the more reason he's not a righteous kind of dude who would probably sleep with his own daughters. What's particularly weird here is that in the book of Second Peter, which of course was not written by Peter, it was probably written by a group after, long after Peter's death, but Lot is considered a righteous man in this story, at least righteous enough to escape from Sodom and Gomorrah, and then immediately goes out and does this awful thing, right? And we can talk about whether or not he was the victim of rape here. We can talk about whether he's a willing participant or whether he is, you know, all of these other things. But just like Noah, he seems to be a righteous person. God uses him for this profound purpose. God rescues him out of this danger that is coming. And then he turns around and does something so appalling just absolutely disgusting. That seems to be overlooked in the way that he is remembered (laughs) a lot of the time uh, through the rest of the book. I mean, I'm obviously biased that Lot was a more willing participant in this than the text actually says, but my evidence of that reading is based on how capitalism has corrupted familial relationships. You can see famous examples all the time of powerful men, quote-unquote righteous men, men we want to aspire to be. Well, Elon Musk's dad, Errol Musk, has two children with his stepdaughter, who he was her stepfather when she was two years old. There's, I think, a lot of grooming that gets produced by heteronormative patriarchal culture that reflects how Lot's daughters were painted as 
the aggressors rather than as victims as a part of this. Because victim, like people who perpetrate these kind of vicious crimes don't just start doing them out of nowhere. There was an actress uh, from the 70s who was on sitcoms. Her name was Mackenzie Phillips. Mackenzie Phillips came out as saying she had a consensual relationship with her father starting when she was 19. And she said that. But now if you, like, more recently, she's come out and she's realized she did not have a consensual relationship with her father. She was manipulated and groomed. And even as a part of, like, a survival tactic mentally, she convinced herself that it was a consensual thing rather than deal with the the notion that someone that they're so close to betrayed their trust on such a fundamental level. But her dad was a part of show business. Abuse is like built into that system. And Hollywood has a lot of very good examples. But this this shit is just in wealthy, elite, powerful, closed circles everywhere. Yeah. And and let us be super clear when we're saying that we're not saying that the rich have secret farms where they, uh, you know, bleed children of adrenochrome, right? Like, first off, we do know that there are wealthy people who have children so that they can use their own blood to try and stay young, right? Like the internet has popped off about that weird billionaire uh, many times. But it is worth pointing out the fact that how do the wealthy become wealthy? By exploiting people who are underneath them, right? The wealthy billionaires are billionaires because they exploit the people below them. They steal their wages, they abuse them, they dehumanize them. So why would it be surprising then that they, these people who can have anything that they want, would not violate these most basic human taboos on exploiting their own children. It's worth pointing out here, again, that what are the Ammonites famous for? The Ammonites are famous as throughout the Bible as child sacrificers, right? Because they come from a person who is willing to sacrifice his own daughters to protect himself, right? And was willing to give them up. And so the Ammonites become these child sacrificers, these these terrible enemies of the people of Israel because of this history, right? And it goes all the way down to continuing a cycle of violence that continues um, until until the god Molech that the Ammonites are supposed to worship, um, at least according to the Bible, not necessarily backed up by the archaeological record, but again, within the, myth- the mythos of the scriptures, that these are child sacrificers. And it goes back to the very beginning of how they came into existence in the first place, because a rich and wealthy person was willing to violate these taboos because he had never been told no before. There's a normalization of grooming and taking advantage of your own children within the elite, powerful, and moneyed. We could just see an example with Trump and Ivanka, the way he has sexualized her body openly to the public. It's all speculation from that, but that's really bad. There are there are people in the conservative sphere in America that are defending this sexualization and incest. And if they're okay with that, what are they doing with their own children? Sorry, I get a little upset. But you can see evidence if you've ever just like skulked around, if you've ever looked at incel stuff just to see what they're saying. This is the kind of abuse to their daughters that they want to perpetuate. They believe in that full ownership of their daughter because they made them. 
so they can do whatever they want to them. And that's a horrifying notion that there are people on the internet in this day and age talking about that openly. That's a red flag. A lot of the time it is girls and women who are blamed for this sexualization and this like being irresistible to the man, their father even. And that that's so fucked up. And and irresistible, right? Like that irresistible makes it sound like, you know, they have some sort of uh, deep power. No, you're the person with power in this scenario, right? The, the rapist is the person with power. And that is what Jesus has to say to us when he says that if you are, if uh, looking at someone is causing you to sin, gouge your own eye out. Because he's not about blaming the victim here. He's about pointing out the fact that we are moral creatures who are in charge of our own moral universes. And if we choose to violate the love that we're supposed to have for our children in this way, it is not because they are quote unquote irresistible. It's because we failed to resist some terrible dehumanizing aspect of ourselves to stop ourselves from doing this thing in the first place. I, I'm I'm sorry. I don't know how to. I don't know how to talk about this in, with anything other than righteous indignation. Um, I, 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 it's it's so understandable. Um, Brooke Shields was not a victim of incest or anything, but she's a victim of sexual exploitation from a very young age. And for the longest time, she her she also blamed herself and had so much struggle like reconciling that. But if you look at media stuff of the time, like what the criticism was, it was all on her too. So mm. like the media was reinforcing her the blame for herself. But mm. that keeps happening. Moab and Amy were blamed, and I also think the groupies of the 70s were blamed. Priscilla Presley was blamed. Kylie Jenner was blamed. Sorry for all the, like, it just keeps happening. But that that's that's what hierarchy does to desire. It, it corrupts it, and especially in patriarchy and ownership of children by the patriarch, like, that, that's where it gets so, so corrupted. It, no, I, I think I think you're absolutely right there. Yeah, that desire, like desire, has a place in natural human relationships, right? Like desire has a good role to have. Problem is when our desire turns to seeing another human as just an object of desire, rather than as a beautiful image of God who I can also desire, right? Like I, I desire to be in good relationship with my wife um, because I think my wife is the most beautiful person in the world, right? Um, even though I go through crazy bicycles where sometimes I'm only attracted to men and sometimes I'm only attracted to women and sometimes I'm only attracted to non-binary folks and sometimes I'm only attracted to uh, the mailman, you know, like I am always still attracted to my wife because desire, that desire is based off of love, right? It's, it's rooted in um, wanting to be in relationship with a person that I love because of who that person is, right? And because of the basis of our relationship. That is not a bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh, it's not a bad thing to find people hot. But it is really bad to see them as just things that are hot rather than people with whom I should be engaging in a in deep and meaningful relationship, especially 
if those people are children, right? Like, we shouldn't be desiring children in that way. We should be desiring to be in right relationship with children because they are lovely human beings who are just figuring out the world, and our instinct should be to care for them, not to figure out how we use people to our own advantage. But because of the capitalist system in which we work, all of these relationships are always just, how can I use this thing to my advantage? How can I exploit uh, this relationship uh, you know, networking, right? We I hate networking because it is, how do I exploit this relationship to get to the end that I want to bring about? How do I exploit this friendship to figure out the way to get myself a leg up, right? And all of those things are the corruption of capitalism that means that we are not able to be fully human with each other. And if we reject those things and instead have a system where we have a social responsibility, all of us, to care for the children that are in our midst, to care for the people who are going to be exploited, to care for the people who are just like us, otherwise going to be abused by the system. If we care for them instead, we can create a system that actually protects them instead of glorifying in our own creepy desires <laughs> that get in the way of building those relationships. It's kind of like, you know, Lot is absolutely in the, I own my children, I can do whatever I want with them, give them to strangers, if the situation calls for it, camp. Mm. I think that there is a connection there, right? Is that um, here we see a story, or, or in the last text, we saw a story where Lot was very willing to give up his, his daughters to protect his guests, right? And Abraham seems willing to give up Isaac to, to please God, right? But I... Uh, dear listener, you will not hear this episode for a couple of weeks, but I think that the impulse to say that Abraham was willing to go along with God while God was doing this sort of play act, right, where God was doing a sign act, that Abraham was certain that, Ab that Isaac was not actually going to be sacrificed, that's a profoundly different thing, right? The binding of Isaac was more about, like, Abraham learning that Isaac, like, isn't his to do what he wants with, but that Isaac belongs to God. You know, Isaac's agency is a little flim-flammy in that story, but it, it feels like a parental lesson, not, not something for Isaac necessarily. So, Spencer, you were pointing out that there are a couple of really interesting examples throughout the Old Testament that talk about ways that women are just in these dire situations and have to use their power to basically perpetuate their line, to be able to provide for themselves. Um, the story compared to Judah and Tamar and Ruth and Boaz, right? Uh, would you mind expanding a little bit on that? Yeah, like, like you said, there's in the Bible, uh, there are, there's three cases of this, uh, this sperm theft of the woman becoming pregnant by some duplicitous means. So there's, there's this story, and then later on, there's the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And then there's also the story of Ruth and Boaz. Now these, these stories are, are interestingly connected. So if we, we go to that, that last story, the story of Ruth and Boaz, Ruth herself is a Moabite. So she's a descendant of, of one of the relations that happens in the story that we're discussing now. And Boaz is a descendant of Perez, who's one of the children that's born by Tamar. So all three of these 
relations are ancestors of King David through Ruth and Boaz. And also being ancestors of King David, they're also ancestors of Jesus Christ. There might be something important in this relationship. I don't know. I found it interesting. Well, you know, the the story, particularly the story of Judah and Tamar, right, is Tamar has been wronged because she is owed a child, right? She's owed a descendant because her husband died. Uh, according to law, the law at the time, the light, uh, the law of the Leverite marriage, the brother of her husband was supposed to help her have a child so that his brother could have a descendant and the inheritance could go to that descendant. And uh, Onan decides to pull out at the last minute, pardon the pun, and uh, spill his seed. Now, this is often taken as, uh, in particularly conservative circles, as a sign that you're not supposed to masturbate and you're only supposed to have sex for procreation. Um, that the Bible is is <laughs> Paul is very clear that you're supposed to only have sex if you're horny, and the Book of uh, Song of Solomon is also very clear that sex is fun and a great thing to do, um, and it's a great thing to do in all sorts of manners of doing it. And so, uh, sex is not just about uh, reproduction, but this particular kind of sex was supposed to be to produce a child so that Tamar would be taken care of. And when she doesn't get that, when Onan pulls out, God strikes Onan dead because Onan is not doing justice by Tamar. He is condemning, uh, Onan is condemning Tamar to a life of poverty, of death, of, of economic destruction. And so Tamar then goes and manipulates Judah her husband's father, to having sex with her and giving her an heir. And that is a matter of justice, right? That is a matter of of her taking justice into her own hands and making things right so that she is not left powerless in this circumstance, right? And Ruth and Boaz are Ruth providing progenity for Naomi because Naomi has lost all of her family and had no one to take care of. And so Ruth has a child with Boaz um, through... Uh, not really as manipulative of a means. Uh, she just went and slept with him. Uh, pretty classic story of uh, you meet somebody, they uh, they are aggressive in bed, and then you fall in love with them. Um, you meet someone, they uncover your feet. And yeah. <laughs> you know where it goes <laughs> the from The rest there. is history. I mean, isn't that how we all met our spouses? Um, anyway, so, um, <laughs> so, you know, classic first date scenario. They do fantastic things with your feet, and then you decide to get married. Um, and, you know, and, and that's all also a matter of economic justice, right? And so this story, I think, is, again, for these daughters, a matter of trying to preserve themselves, trying to make sure that they're able to be taken care of when they're old. Because if they think that they are the only people left on the earth, they have to have a means of survival, right? And so this is their best plan of surviving this scenario. Now, a scenario that's entirely not in, in not real, right? That that they could go back to Zoar um, if they thought that Zoar was going to continue to be a place that existed. But from their perspective, they they don't know if that's the case, right? And so I think that this story, these people all being ancestors of Jesus, is important, right? That the the ancestors of Jesus all have really important roles to play. And I think that there is some redemption there in that story. It is saying that even though this is a really fucked up situation to find yourselves in, that they tried to do something, right? It might not have been a good thing. It might not have been an ethical thing, but they tried to do the best thing they could in this terrible scenario. I I don't know if I want that to be the takeaway from the story, but... <laughs> 
Yeah, that, I don't like that. Nope. Nope. Don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think another takeaway that you could take from these three stories is that the descendants of these people, the descendants of these uh, less than ideal parents mm. are not left out of God's plan. I think it's, it's a lesson for if you come from a not ideal family, if there's abuse in your family, you're, you're not lost to God. He still sees you. You can, you can still go on. You can be a, a King David, uh, preferably in his good times. Or maybe you could be like Jesus. You could be like yeah. Jesus. Who's a better role model. <laughs> yeah, Just I, like I was going to go on and say you could be a Jesus, but that 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 seemed a little too <laughs> too blasphemous. <laughs> that is not blasphemous. That's what we're supposed to be, as okay, little Christ. He, <laughs> that's 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 true. Yes. Jesus may have been fully divine, but he was also fully human, and mm. you can emulate that part all the way <laughs> every day. So back when I was a little evangelical and my best friend was a Mormon girl that I was desperately trying to convert so that she wouldn't go to hell, uh, I learned <laughs> that, um, <laughs> you know, I, I learned about Mormonism that one of the central doctrines is that uh, God was made like man so that man might become like God. And when I first heard that, my little evangelical soul was like, oh no, look at this heresy. But uh, and I don't understand that text in the same way that I think that, that Mormons do, but that text doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from St. Irenaeus, the, the bishop uh, who, was, who was talking about the ways in which we are redeemed, right? That our humanity and our divinity are not that far separate, and, the, and Jesus becoming fully human was so that we could all completely participate in the life of the divine, even if we have come from circumstances as fucked up as this one, pardon the pun, that we could still become and participate in the divine nature. Even Jesus had skeletons in his family's closets. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> The ways that the Ammonites and the Moabites show up throughout the rest of history is really interesting. And we will definitely see this more as we continue on. The Ammonites and the Moabites end up being Israel's uh, basically worst enemies during the wandering through the desert before Israel finally makes its way uh, to the land that becomes known as Israel. And the Ammonites and the Moabites are basically set up as the worst possible enemies of the people of Israel. And yet, Ruth, a Moabite, becomes the ancestor of Jesus. This person who is the, the worst possible enemy of the people of God, even they get involved in God coming to earth, right? And this, I think, is what goes back to the, the promise that is given to Isaac, that Isaac would be a blessing, not just to his own people, but to all the peoples of the earth. And that is to what we are called as people of faith today and as leftists today. We are called to be blessings, even to those who are our worst enemies, right? And I, I keep harping on this, but <laughs> I pray for the salvation of the rich. I pray that they are able to give up their wealth that has been stolen. I pray that they are able to replace that wealth with relationships with human beings so that they are fully loved. And also, we shouldn't uh, hate the rich enough to allow them to stay separated from their full humanity.
we should be calling out in the wilderness, calling out what's going on here, calling out the fucked up ways that our world works and saying, we need to make this right. And that is something that all of us can do. This, this story, along with many other stories, I mean, like, like you say in at the intro of every single episode, this is a odd story, (laughs) (laughs) but there's, there's definitely stories that are more, more difficult to difficult to go around than others. And this, I would put this, if not the top, then very, very close to the top of that list of difficult stories in the Bible. I think it might be, might be worth a bit of a discussion as to why we, why we don't just skip over these difficult stories. Yeah. Well, there's, there's a number of reasons that we don't skip over these stories, right? First off, this story is here in the Bible because the ancient people thought it had something to teach us, right? Now, it's possible that the thing that they thought it was here to teach us was to hate the Ammonites and the Moabites. Um, (laughs) I'm very open to the ancients thinking that. I think that that's a good reading on what they probably were thinking. Um, But it is here for a reason. And I believe that Scripture is God-breathed. Now, when I say God-breathed, I mean in the same way that humans were God-breathed, where uh, Scripture is beautiful and weird and messed up and wonderful and terrible and all of those things at once, simultaneously, just like every human being. <laughs> um, and so this story is is one of those examples of the profoundly strange ways that this shows up. Why do we not skip this story? Because it's a part of our heritage. And... I think that it also gives us a chance to talk about the way that uh, people who are particularly in very privileged positions can abuse their power and use those things to exploit their fellow human being. And, and very practically, because, because I think that this story is going to come up again and again as we go throughout the rest of Scripture, that, that every story in Genesis comes back up throughout the rest of the Bible. And this story is going to relate to other stories of incest. This story is going to relate to Judah and Tamar and Ruth and Naomi. This story is going to relate to the way that we talk about sex throughout the rest of the scriptures. And it's going to talk about the ways that women have had to fight for survival in this setting, in this time that was not good or healthy for women to live in, right? Not that I think that that Lot's daughters made good choices here, but they did what they needed to do to survive. This story is traumatic and hard, but stories like these are important and necessary to talk about because it helps us correct these horrific wrongs. We can take a biblical story like this and take a look at our own society and reflect on the things that have changed and the things that still need to change. Talking about these things from all different perspectives can help people realize maybe they too were a victim. So much of our society is built around silencing those who have been hurt by these systems. For example, Freud changed his entire study of psychology because he couldn't handle the sheer number of his wealthy women patients who had been abused by their fathers, who also were the wealthy elite. He even went as far to develop the Oedipal theory to shift back the blame on women and mothers. He chose to protect the patriarchy through this. We have to speak the truth, horrific and uncomfortable as it is, so that we can rip out the true evil and cast it into the fire. Absolutely. Elle and Spencer, thank you for being here on a, on a difficult conversation that is a strange story that it is frankly hard to get something meaningful out of. 
for our own time. But I do think that it is worth pointing out that even in this terrible situation, God is able to use whatever happened for good. That even though they were in this terrible situation, that people came out and lived full lives and became an entire nation because of the decisions of these two people, even in this terrible thing, that life finds a way to continue, even from difficult circumstances. And that this story is almost certainly fictional. (laughs) That it's almost certainly a story of propaganda against an enemy. And yet even this propaganda against an enemy becomes part of the story of salvation. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Now, Pastor Micah, take it away. Thank you, future Micah. And of course, you, our wonderful listener. Together, we have made a wonderful and growing community on Discord that I look forward to being a part of every day. Your generous support on Patreon has already greatly increased the quality of our podcast, including this very outro. As an extra little thank you, you can get episodes early along with a bunch of other cool perks. Please follow the link in the show notes to join our Discord, Patreon, and all of the other things mentioned throughout this episode. If you would like to reach me directly, you can reach me through the Discord or by email at thewordinblackandred at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. Now, friends, go and take the time to heal from this story, to rest after these difficult things that we've talked about, and know that Although the world can be dark and hard, that God loves you, and that God is working to bring all things together for good, and we get to be a part of that. Shalom. Spencer, talk to me about sperm theft. <laughs> what a what a sentence. <laughs>